0: Hey, everyone. I'm Anastasia Teterenko,
1: And I'm Rick Lewis. And you're listening to Way Out, a podcast about Alabama's LGBTQ community.
0: Rick and I have been working on this for a year now and have traveled to different parts of Alabama to meet the people in the show. We're so excited that you get to meet them, too.
1: Some people you'll meet are advocates doing work across Alabama, and others are just people and family leaders living out and open in a state that can be hard to call home.
0: We hope you enjoy the show. Let's go. I remember learning about it in elementary school. I was in fifth grade. A teacher I'd never seen came in and told us we were going to have a serious conversation. She came in to tell us about HIV. She said that it was a blood disease and that AIDS is what you called it when it got really bad. She told us that even one tiny drop of blood could make you sick. So sick that you could die. After the presentation, I went out in the hallway and heard kids whispering, saying that all gay people had AIDS, that God was punishing them. They were quiet to make sure the teachers wouldn't hear. As I went through school, I heard AIDS described as a gay disease again and again and again, and for a long time it was all that I knew. Today we're meeting a man whose life and story has changed the way I understand HIV and AIDS and challenged the narrative I learned from my schooling and the world around me. My name is Anastasia Titarenko, and you're listening to Way Out, a podcast about LGBTQ folks in Alabama. Rick is bringing you today's story, Darkness and Light.
2: He's my partner. He does not take cool or cold well. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, right now he would be uncomfortable. And I tell him I'm not going to sweat for him. I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) This is Alan Woolhart,
1: We spoke to him at his home in Walker County, Alabama. His life is full of art. The walls of his home are filled with Baroque sculpture, colorful renditions of Manet and Picasso and stained glass. It's a den of paint and ceramic and light. Alan is a trained artist and has watched his art develop with him, echoing the different stages of his life.
2: My art has changed over the years. When I was growing up, And well into my adulthood, all I would do is draw. I mean, you can look at the drawings over there and see that they look like pictures. I was very hard on myself back then. I was a perfectionist. I had to make it look as real as possible. And I had a great teacher. We would sort of go at it because she wanted me to be able to experience all of art, you know, different uh, mediums, different styles. And I just wasn't up for it. I thought that art should be realistic. And when I got older, I ended up, actually it was one of the things through the clinic, we had art therapy, which I adored. And I never thought that I could do anything in color. Because if I take that color test where you look at the different circles and see the numbers in there, I couldn't see half of them. I couldn't make out the numbers. So I wasn't what was called colored blind. I was called colored dumb. So if you look at my paintings, they're bright. In the 80s, Alan was diagnosed with HIV. I remember that it was... God, way back in the day, it was in the early 80s, I think. I was going to, uh, with a friend, down to uh, the park for Gay Pride Day. And they had a booth that was set up down there that had the information about GRID, which is what they called it at that time. It was not AIDS, it was gay-related infectious disease. And so another friend came up and said, hey, you want to come down here to this booth and take a look at some of this, this literature uh, and figure out what's going on. And I'm sorry, I just was stupid. I thought, you know, my reply to him was, you know, this is just the government trying to get back at us, We're trying to move forward with who we are and get our rights and I'm not going to have the government tell me that I have this disease.
1: Alan wasn't the only person to think that way back then. As AIDS made its way into the larger public vocabulary, there was still a lot of confusion and fear surrounding it. But Alan's understanding of the disease sadly turned personal.
2: I um, got sick, and it wasn't the kind of sickness that you uh, you would think that had to do with HIV or AIDS. I had a sore throat that wouldn't go away. I had the sore throat, and my partner at that time, he was an RN, and he managed to get me to go into the emergency room at the hospital where he worked after hours. And the doctor came out, and they drew blood, and they did all kinds of stuff. But the doctor was acting very nervously. I'm telling you, he was really jumpy. And he said, your platelet count is low, which is one of the ingredients that make your blood clot. And he said, I think that you need to go and see your doctor. And he kept pressing that I needed to go see my doctor. So I went to my doctor, and in the meantime, I found out that I had haemophilus, influenza, and strep throat. So they gave me a series of antibiotics and it cured it. But when I went to my doctor, she wanted to draw blood too and it came back half of what it was a few days before when I went into the emergency room. And she was alarmed by that and she thought, you know, If this continues on, you're going to start to spontaneously bleed. So she said, I'm going to turn you over to a hematologist. Well, in that time, everybody who was gay knew that HIV and AIDS was out there. And I knew that what hematologist meant. And I said, so you're going to send me to a blood doctor Does that mean that they're going to test me for HIV? And she says, don't be silly, Alan. You're already in a high-risk category. Yes, they're going to test you.
1: Before going to see the hematologist, Alan decided to go to the health department and get tested.
2: I went in in, on in, and I was tested. And they told me that there was pre-test counseling and post-test counseling that it would take two weeks for them to get the test back. He came back to the clinic two weeks later. So I went in to get my post-test results, and they took me to a room, and the guy sat down behind the desk. He whipped open the folder, and he said, well, you're positive. Then he went silent. And after a minute had passed, I sort of shook my head, and he said, well, surely you must have known. And I said, no, I didn't, but now I do. And now, I guess this ends my post-test counseling.
1: Alan felt extremely alone in his diagnosis, and it took him weeks to get an appointment at the HIV and AIDS clinic in Birmingham.
2: In those days... The clinic only was open two days a week. And they were full of patients. And I didn't know another person who who had it. So a friend of mine knew somebody, and they came and they talked with me. And I really didn't get much from them. All I got from them was, prepare yourself. Because... It's not going to be easy. And he didn't live much longer beyond that. I went to the support group. I was the first one in it. I made a horrible prayer that I wish I could take back. I asked God to send somebody to me that I could talk to, that knew what I was going through. And in a matter of a few months, the room was full of them. Some of these people were better human beings than I was. Nobody deserved to live better than they did. They wouldn't die one or two at a time. They would die three or four. So it was hard to really grieve for a specific person. And the support group would uh, die away, and then it would build back, and then it would die away, and it would build back.
1: It was this constant cycle of decline and death, funeral after funeral, that finally led Allen to leave the support group. But eventually Allen began working with the University of Alabama at Birmingham's 1917 clinic. It was one of the only places he could find treatment, since many healthcare practitioners wouldn't see affected patients in traditional hospitals or practices. The clinic still exists today and serves patients with HIV, but Allen was there towards its beginning.
2: So. I started volunteering at the clinic two days a week and I volunteered two days a week at Birmingham AIDS Outreach so that I wouldn't have a lot of extra time on my hands. I would be doing something and giving back. And that's another thing that I believe in is that we should always try to make this world better than what we found it. So I knew that the problem with me when I first went to the clinic was that I was the only person I knew with with the disease, and I felt so alone and scared. So when people would come into the clinic to be seen, the first thing I would do if they were a new patient, I would introduce myself, and I would tell them that I had AIDS. And it was sort of like, Their eyes started out glazed over, but all of a sudden a switch had been turned and they focused, and they actually were starting to listen. And I tell them things like, if you don't understand what the doctor has said to you, make him explain it to you several times until you get it before you leave. And if you have more questions when you go home, write them down in a notebook and bring them back with you. So that was my start of being a volunteer.
1: But while the clinic was an important resource, it was still a victim of public fear and uncertainty.
2: It was really pretty bad back then. When you went into the main clinic, there were two waiting rooms. If you really didn't want anybody to see you, you came to a door in the in behind the clinic and rang a doorbell and they would walk you to the waiting room that you were supposed to go to so you couldn't be seen. If you were just a regular patient, you came into the regular waiting room. They would bring out information on these portable boards that they would fold up and take away after uh, patients were seen in the evening because other patients were being seen there, other Patients from different walks of life, like diabetes, things of that nature, were being seen in that building. And they didn't want people to know that HIV-positive people were being seen there because they felt that people wouldn't want to come back to that building. We had people who were so afraid of us. I remember that one time, another volunteer at the clinic and I were asked to go pick up a patient from his home. This young man had been taken in by his family, and he got sick. And when he got sick, they were afraid. So they drove him back to his apartment, took him in his apartment, put him down in a recliner, and left with the front door open. The guy would go in and out of consciousness and when he finally came to and could pull himself to a phone, he called the clinic which sent me and another volunteer out there to pick him up. I held him up while the other person cleaned him because he had messed on himself for several days. We clothed him. We took him out and fed him. We got him to the clinic and It was those times that made me feel like I was doing something. He thanked us profusely. And he died a few days later.
1: Alan has so many stories like these, watching people suffer or die without their family near. But Alan was a patient too, and he struggled with how he'd tell the people he cared about
2: the most without losing them. I came home to Jasper and met with my family and told them there wasn't a dry eye. It was very hard to look at your family and see them stare back at you, wanting to help you so bad, but couldn't. We really haven't talked much about it since.
1: Alan is a very faithful person. His life in the church has led him through some very dark periods, and he credits God with keeping him alive through all the pain that he's gone through. So it was important to him that his church knew his diagnosis, whether or not they would continue to
2: support him. In my church, they have what is called a lauricistic minister. They help the priest by uh, in communion by sharing the cup of wine. He brings around the bread, They bring around the wine. And I was a lay christian minister. And I thought it wasn't fair for people to take from that cup and not know when I passed it. So I told my priest. And I said, I'd rather just not do it anymore and not tell them. And he said something to me that resonated with me. He said, They're your brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you don't tell them, you will have cut them out of one of the most important things that they need to know about you. So I pondered that over, and I told them, I said, okay, Sunday I'm passing the cup of wine. And in our church, the announcements were made first so that the service flowed from front to back seamlessly. I came in there and I told them, I said, I was tested and I found out that I have HIV. And if any of you don't want to come up and take this cup from me, I will understand. And if you don't want me to continue to come to church, I will understand. Again, there wasn't a dry eye. It was one of the most beautiful moments in my life when all of them came up and took of the cup.
1: To this day, Alan still serves in his church and considers it a close community. But there have been moments that have tested his resolve, like when he tried to get married.
2: Larry and I were going to be married last year. We're Episcopalian. The Episcopal churches. Here in the south, will allow you to do it, but there are three conditions that have to be met the priest has to okay it, the bishop has to okay it, and the vestry, which is like the governing body of the church, has to okay it. If any one of those three elements decides that it shouldn't be done, it can't be done. Well, we were given the go-ahead. Larry and I went through counseling together and I wanted to be married in my church because that's the way I think. I think of myself as really no different than anybody else. So naturally, I'd want to be married in my church. And we could have been. The thing was, the priest decided that he wanted to bring it before the congregation so the congregation as a whole would know so that it would sneak up on them. And Larry and I had decided that we were we didn't have to be there for that. That way they could talk amongst themselves and be as openly honest as they could be. But the priest asked us to stay because he felt like we were part of that community and should be have some something to say about it. So we went in there and it did not go well it was it was horrible there were families that treated us and went to gay functions with us that we found out did not believe in same-sex marriage and were very ugly about it and three families left the church Uh, The priest said, well, Alan, we're ready for you to be married. And I told him, I said, I can't do it. I can't hurt the church any more than I already have. And I feel that I have. I think I have done that out of arrogance because I really didn't take in the account that there are people in my family that have known me all my life and have had problems with me being gay. And I was arrogant enough to think that the people that I went to church with for 25 years knew me so well that it would not be a problem. So I realized that I was wrong. The wedding was right. It was the right thing to do. But what made it wrong was if I had done it, there were still families that were having difficulties about it, that were still going to church with us three families had left, if we had gotten married, I don't think that church would have survived. I really don't. And I could not allow that to happen just because I wanted to have a day. In many ways, Larry and I are as married as two people can be. So to push forward with that would have caused a lot of damage and a lot of anger, a lot of hatred and I'm not that kind of guy. Now, if it had been a life or death situation, sure enough, I'd have gone in there like Sherman through Georgia, but it wasn't that kind of importance.
1: Alan is extremely humble, and it's this humility and belief in living openly that allows him to change people's minds about the LGBTQ
2: community. I love my church family. We are They're an incredible group of people. And I realize that there are are some of them that are delicate when it comes to beliefs. So I can't make them understand any more than just by living my life in front of them. There's nothing more that I can give them hope that one day they realize that there's nothing different b- between us and that we all should have, be able to have the same dignity in life. Uh, some of them might never get there, but I'm not going to fault them for it. I have to live my life as best I can, and uh, I'm going to do that. Now, there are times I I will say that I do get angry, but I have to work through that anger because I honestly think that that's what God has allowed me to do throughout my life is to work through the things that have been so bad. So that's my job
1: (laughs) is to work through it. Part of living a true life to Alan also means acknowledging HIV and not shying away from a difficult topic.
2: Back then when people were dying of AIDS, you would always hear that, oh, my son died of cancer. They could not confess to the fact that their son had died of AIDS. It was a stigma. I went to a one of my high school reunions, and they had this wall that had pictures of classmates who had perished over the years, and one of them was a a gay man that I knew. And everybody had something underneath their picture, like uh, this one died in a car accident, this one died of cancer. His did not have a designation, and I sort of got a little pissed over it. So I went to the the two ladies that were involved in getting the reunion up and running and I walked over to her and I said uh I see uh his picture up there on the wall uh what did he die of can you tell me because everybody else seems it sort of tells their story but there's nothing there and she said oh just a second and she went to the other lady and you could see them in the corner talking to each other very seriously in hushed tones. And then she comes back to me and she says, oh, well, we heard that he died of cancer. And I looked at her and I said, cancer? I never would have thought cancer. And I turned around and walked away. But then I came back to her and I said, just in case, if I happen to die, I want you to put AIDS underneath my name because I'm not ashamed of having the disease. I wish I didn't have the disease, but I am not ashamed of it.
1: Alan refuses to let HIV define his life.
2: I think that if you take an eraser to your life, it becomes smaller and smaller. And I'm much more diverse than HIV. I'm much more diverse than being gay, but they're a part of me, and it's something that I'm not going to be able to change. So when you look at it realistically, and you have to live a life, then your life has to be made as full as possible, and that means embracing the things that you have to work on.
1: All of the growth, pain, and change that Alan has experienced manifests itself in his art. His most recent style is one with flowing pairings of shape and form filled with vibrancy and ideas of movement.
2: First I went into being abstract and started doing the abstract ones, which is something that I never, ever would have done when I was, was growing up. And I got to experience it wasn't just it being a piece of art, it was a feeling. You know, what you felt while you were painting it how it came out and trying to see if it translated so there are some people that would say what is that and i'll say it's beauty that's what it is it's beauty
0: This was produced by Rick Lewis and me, Anastasia Titarenko. A big thanks to Alan Woolhart for being a part of this. To learn more about the 1917 Clinic, check out uab.edu slash medicine 1917clinic. Our theme music is All the Colors in the World by Pottington Bear. Other music used was Nothing Much by My Bubba Me and Lens Flare, Dunes, Solemn Oath, Cloud Bank, and Tumbledown by Pottington Bear, who also did our credits theme, Collocate. A big thank you to Alec Owens for speaking to us about his work in the 1917 clinic and his research on HIV and AIDS. Also big thank you to Alec Smith, the director of Equality Alabama, for speaking with us. Special thanks to Dr. Rebecca Ballard, Andrew Grace, Chip Brantley, Paul Kennedy, Davis Jackson, Allie Thomason, the University of Alabama Honors College, and the Samford Media Center. If you like what you heard today, share this with someone you know. You can find our page on Facebook at Way Out Alabama Podcast. Please like us, share us, and tell us what you think. Thank you for listening.